Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. If you listen to the station a lot, you might have heard a promo for a show about clouds. We're not doing that. Uh, Obviously, one of the things that's challenging these days is the ability to understand when a paradigm shift has happened, when something that's a real sharp turn is going on. And I think that happened yesterday in Washington, first with the president's phone call to governors about the use of force to dominate, and then his own piece of theater, which involved tear gassing and in other ways forcibly dispersing protesters so that he could walk over to a church where, by the way, he had really been not, not been authorized to go. So what's happening here? What is happening here? Let's talk about that. Your calls are welcome. Okay, so this is Colin McEnroe. We're live here on Tuesday. The plan had been to run a show about clouds. And I don't know, maybe you would have found that kind of soothing, right? I mean, maybe just thinking about clouds for an hour would have been the way to go. But we didn't think so. We thought, particularly after last night's events uh, in Washington, D.C., that something was calling for. You kind of want to do something, right? Uh, And we wanted you to be involved, too. So we scheduled an emergency show. Uh, Betsy Kaplan agreed to produce it. And then uh, the original gangster, one of the original gangsters of uh, Connecticut Public Radio, Katie Tularski, agreed to come into the studio uh, and uh, uh, produce an engineer from there so we could work remotely because Kat was not available today. And so we have, you know, that's that's who you've got. You've got the three of us. And what we're going to do in a little while is give you the phone number and let you call in because I think you might have things to say. Uh, about our topic today. We're also going to bring you a a guest here at the beginning. I'll tell you about him in just a second. But I want to just kind of recap what happened uh, in the early evening last night, around six o'clock or so. I don't know. That might not be early evening. Uh, But members of the National Guard uh, near the White House put uh, on gas masks uh, before suddenly charging eastward down H Street pushing protesters down towards 17th Street. Authorities shoved protesters, I'm going from the Washington Post here, shoved protesters down with their shields, fired rubber bullets directly at them, released tear gas, and set off flashbang shells in the middle of the crowd. Protesters began running, many with their hands still up, shouting, don't shoot. Others were vomiting, coughing, crying. Now, the purpose of this, the reason that this happened was essentially because President Donald Trump wanted to walk across the street. He wanted to walk over to an Episcopal church to which he had not been invited or which he had not been authorized by the diocese to use and would not have been. 
so that he could make an appearance. Uh, he wanted to stand there with some of his aides uh, and hold up a Bible, which he handled as though it were a very unfamiliar object, kind of how does this work thing. Um, and the response was pretty vehement against uh, it. The, the mayor of D.C., Mayor Muriel Bowser, said, I imposed a curfew at 7 p.m., a full 25 minutes before the curfew. Without provocation, federal police used munitions on peaceful protesters in front of the White House, an act that will make the job of the D.C. police officers more difficult, shameful. Um, the right Reverend Marion Budd, the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese in Washington, said she was outraged. Uh, I am the Bishop uh, of the Episcopal Diocese. I was not given a courtesy call that they would be clearing with tear gas so they could use one of our churches as a prop, holding a Bible, one that declares God is love when everything he has said and done, talking about Trump, everything he has said and done is to inflame violence. So, we're going to talk about this today because this could be have been an isolated incident. It was part of a long day that began perhaps significantly with a phone call by Trump to Putin uh, in Russia. Uh, we don't know everything that was said there or whether Putin gave him any advice. Uh, but that was followed up, of course, by this famous phone call uh, to um to governors, uh, where he upbraided them and called them weak. Uh, in fact, uh, Katie, if we could just go over to A2, uh, we have a little bit of that uh, leaked phone call from, uh, to the governors. We're strongly looking for arrests. Well, you have to get much tougher. You're going to get overridden. Uh, I know Governor Walz is on the phone, and, and we spoke. And uh, I fully agree with the way he handled it the last couple of days. I asked him to do that. Get a lot of men. We have all the men and women that you need. But people aren't calling them up. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. Okay, so this could be kind of a one-time thing, uh, a response uh, to unrest in the streets. Also, clearly, he had felt that his masculinity had been called into question on Friday night uh, when he was huddling in the basement with the lights off at the White House, like like one of those families that's afraid the trick-or-treaters might show up, you know, so they, you know, they don't have any candy. <laughs> And turn off the lights. Um, he, and there was sort of a sense that he was afraid. Uh, and in order to counter that, I mean, it took quite a bit of milita militarized force for him to get out and walk around, uh, walk over to this church. But that was very much the plan. It was it was a way of saying with a whole lot of help from his friends. Oh, no, I'm not afraid. I can walk around. Watch me. So that's one possibility that it's just all about the moment. And one of the things that we often think about Donald Trump because he doesn't seem reflective and he seems to have no impulse control and he seems almost never to be looking toward the future or beyond what's in front of him. He's like a dog looking at his food bowl. He's not going to go, well, I'll save a little of this for later. So there's there's that sense, you know, with him that he doesn't have a master plan. But there's also a possibility that he does and that this was a preview of coming attractions. And that's one of the things that I wanted to explore today. I think we have to get ready for the possibility uh, that his willingness to use the military uh, in civilian situations will not be restricted to this particular set of circumstances. And joining us to help discuss this is Lawrence Douglas. Uh, he is the James J. Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College, a contributor 
contributing opinion writer for The Guardian, his latest book, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020, uh, is also the basis for a piece he did for The Guardian. Um, and he and I have been emailing a little bit, and he agreed to come on today. So, Lawrence Douglas, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you, Colin. So, uh, I, I kind of just summarized what I saw happening yesterday and what I was thinking about it. Um, you had just published a piece based on your book uh, before yesterday, just days before yesterday. Uh, and one of the things that happens in the era of Trump uh, is that things can become completely irrelevant in the space of 24 or 48 hours, or things can become multiply, quadruply true in the space of 24 or 48 hours. So when you wrote your piece about the possibility that President Trump might seek not to accept a losing result uh, or an, an, what he would consider or what he might make out to be as an ambiguous result uh, in 2020. Uh, you wrote that before we had this sudden interest in uh, military presence. So what were you thinking about yesterday as you watched all that unfold? You know, well, I, I should mention that um, I think it is, I think we can accept it as almost a fact that if Trump loses, and particularly if he loses in a pretty closely contested election, that he is not going to accept electoral defeat. He's going to cast electoral defeat as the product of fraud, uh, the product of some kind of hoax. And, um, and that obviously kind of poses incredible dangers to a constitutional democracy when you have an incumbent who is basically challenging the integrity of an electoral loss. And then the question that comes up is what is he prepared to do in the face of uh, an act of electoral defiance? You know, is he prepared to kind of use the military? Uh, there is this old, you know, insurrection act that goes all the way back to the uh, early part of the 19th century. And, you know, would he be, um, you know, would he engage in such a kind of dramatic act as to kind of call out the military in order to um, keep himself installed in power? Now, I don't know if that's necessarily what's going to happen, though I think what we also see, and this is something I think that's pretty clear from yesterday, is it's not as if he's kind of like a law and order president. It's not as if he's someone who's like, oh, well, this is kind of a Richard Nixon. And in face of civil unrest, he's so prepared to, uh, he's so committed to reestablishing order that he's even willing to kind of call out the military. I mean, he's really about photo opportunities and he's really about protecting his brand. And he governs through acts of division. And I think this was really kind of a demonstration to his base that he's tough. Uh, it's a way of demonstrating to his base that he's certainly not going to accept uh, violence coming from uh, people of color. And so I really don't think of this as kind of a, an action uh, that is meant to really kind of preserve or reestablish uh, re order as much as it is to um, protect his own political viability, which I should say is uh, also under threat as a result of the COVID pandemic, the mishandling of that and the kind of economic um, crisis that we find ourselves in as a consequence. Right. I mean, if you could fit 
make America spiral into terrifying chaos under one of those red hats, uh, you'd have a better summation of, of the current situation with COVID layered on economic crisis, layered on civil unrest. So um, you, as you said, he's not necessarily a president who knows the law or believes in the law. He's not a law and order president, but he knows enough to say he is. So let's listen to some more Trump audio from yesterday. I will fight to protect you. I am your president of law and order and an ally of all peaceful protesters. So there you go. <laughs> um, uh, and and uh, there's so many questions that I have to ask you, but uh, we should say that um, way back when Michael Cohen, who knows him very well, was testifying before the House Oversight Committee, uh, he said in his summation that day, indeed, given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And this is why I agreed to appear before you today. Well, Lawrence, since then, we have had the COVID crisis. The COVID crisis immediately triggered a greater interest in uh, mail-in ballots. Uh, and President Trump uh, has used that understandable interest in mail-in ballots to kind of pre-discredit uh, the November election. He says, there's no ways, this is from a tweet, there is no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and e even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. This will be a rigged election. No way. So, as I said, it sounds as though now he's using the COVID crisis and the, the and the turning towards more mail-in balance as a way to kind of pre-discredit something that hasn't even happened yet. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. I mean, it really is kind of a way of, I mean, and let's kind of remind ourselves what an extraordinary, really unprecedented act this is. This is a, a president, this is an incumbent who is uh, maligning the integrity of our electoral system. And he's doing it without any kind of uh, proof whatsoever. And you might ask yourself, well, why is he so intent on attacking, uh, on attacking the integrity of uh, mail-in ballots, which are also called absentee ballots? And I should point out that uh, there's nothing new about mail-in or absentee ballots. In 2016, in that election, about 25 million Americans cast uh, absentee or mail-in ballots. Um, that number is likely to rise uh, this coming election uh, as a result of the outbreak of uh, COVID, particularly is the case that people in urban areas where going to the polls might actually be tantamount to risking your personal health um, in the midst of a pandemic, uh, people in urban areas will probably rely even more heavily on mail-in ballots. And it is also the case uh, that demographically, you know, people in urban areas tend to vote uh, overwhelmingly demogra uh, democratic. And so I think what we see is we see him trying to kind of already delegitimize ballots that are going to break democratic. And, uh, and again, he's doing that without any kind of proof whatsoever. And I should mention that, you know, is it possible to, um, to have, um, you know, corrupted mail-in ballots? Well, there's no basic voting system, which is immune to some type of tampering. But the idea that, you know, these mail-in ballots, they come with barcodes on them. The barcodes have to be read by an optical scanner when they're sent in. There has to be matching signatures. And in fact, if there's a problem with mail-in ballots, it tends to be the case that the ballots lead to undercounting of 
uh, validly cast votes. That is, I don't know if you remember back to the days, I mean, this was not long ago when we, instead of using uh, chips in our credit cards, we would have to kind of countersign mm-hmm. uh, whenever we bought something. And I certainly had the experience of signing something and a clerk in a store said, that's not the signature on your credit card. And, uh, and then I had to kind of argue, no, in fact, that is the signature of my credit card. Well, I was able to do that in person. With mail-in ballots, you can't do that. You have to countersign your mail-in ballot. That signature has to be compared to a signature on file. And if some clerk says, oh, I don't see an agreement between those two signatures, that can lead to a perfectly valid ballot being um, not counted. That has been traditionally the real problem with mail-in ballots. Not that like millions of fraudulent ballots are cast. Again, this is a president without any proof whatsoever trying to malign our electoral system basically to prepare um, his supporters to accept um, that any defeat that he would experience has to be the product of fraud or a hoax. So one of the scenarios that you have posited, and let me just, uh, I'll sort of compress it a little bit, but imagine a very close electoral vote in 2020, uh, and maybe it comes down to the state of Michigan, uh, and Michigan itself is also very close, uh, just a a few thousand votes. Uh, But of course, the mail-in votes take longer to count, so it's impossible to call Michigan on election night. Uh, It it has to wait pending the count of these ballots. Uh, The ballots yield... Uh, uh, a lead to Biden, whereas perhaps going into the counting of the ballots, Trump had a narrow lead. And then uh, the Republican legislature of Michigan, Republican majority legislature, uh, ultimately certifies a victory for victory for Trump. Governor Whitmer uh, seeking to uh, accept the results of the mail-in ballot uh, certifies uh, a victory for Biden. And so on the day that all the electoral votes are are effectively submitted for a final count. There are two entries coming in from one state, two completely different versions of political outcome. I don't know if I did a good good enough job, if there's anything uh, you th- think I left out there, but that's one of the somewhat terrifying scenarios that you're preparing us for. Yeah, you described that perfectly. And, you know, maybe the only thing that I would add to it, just to make it clear for your listeners, is that the ultimate count is done by Congress. Uh, And this takes place, this is going to take place on January 6th, uh, 2021. And uh, this is when Congress in a a joint session where they open up the electoral certificates that have been submitted by the the states and they count them up. And this is typically a ceremonial function. Um, I think in 2012, it took about 23 minutes to go through the whole thing. Um, But if suddenly you have two competing electoral certificates submitted by, let's say, Michigan, with the outcome of the vote in balance, that is no candidate has an electoral majority um, until those remaining 16 electoral college votes of Michigan are counted, then you have a really, really uh, potentially uh, destabilizing situation. Because what you would have is you would have, you know, assuming that we continue to have divided Congress comes January, 2021, you would have presumably the Republican Senate choosing to count the uh, electoral ballots from Michigan that were cast for Trump, giving him the presidency, and presumably have the Democratic House uh, choosing to count the electoral certificate submitted from Michigan that gave Biden 
Michigan's electoral college votes. And suddenly you have two different individuals claiming to be uh, the president elect. Now you might say, oh my God, this is, uh, you know, this is what academics do. They create these, um, these twilight zone scenarios. How could that possibly happen in reality? But it has happened in our history. It happened uh, back in 1876. Uh, this was the famous Hayes-Tilden election. Uh, some of your listeners from their courses in, hist uh, in American history might remember that uh, election. But that was also one which uh, you had um, three different states submitting competing electoral ballots. And as a result of that, the nation was kind of paralyzed. And, uh, and at the time, the incumbent president, this was Ulysses Grant, he was so concerned that you would have two different persons, Hayes on the one hand, Tilden on the other, both claiming to be the commander in chief uh, come inauguration day that he considered um, declaring martial law. And uh, it was only two days before the inauguration that some kind of compromise was worked out. And that compromise was worked out only because Samuel Tilden ultimately was willing to kind of put the good of the nation ahead of his own uh, personal political ambition. And you slot Donald Trump in that situation, and I at least uh, find it impossible to imagine that Trump would act likewise, that he would subordinate his own political ambitions for the good of the nation. We've never seen him do that in his three years of, the, of, of his uh, presidency. So, uh, no, we've now ventured far beyond the outer perimeters of my expertise uh, on this. Uh, so I'll just ask you, uh, um, obviously, there are a number of ways in which the story could branch off from where we're leaving it right now, where there's a stalemate uh, in Congress. Uh, Congress is supposed to certify these votes. Uh, my primitive uh, understanding of civics it seems always in situations like this, the Speaker of the House becomes president. But I don't know whether that's really true or not. And obviously, we are, we're going to have to explore also whether the rule of law would stay in place or whether there would be considerable amounts of thumbs and elbows putting put on the scales to tip them one way or another. But is there just sort of a some kind of latent understanding of what happens if Congress can't certify an election result one way or another? Yeah, it's actually a, it's a terrific question, and I'm afraid the answer isn't going to be all that reassuring uh, to your listeners. Uh, so after this Hayes-Tilden election, uh, Congress realized, oh, my God, we just narrowly um, escaped uh, a complete electoral meltdown. And so Congress then spent the better part of about a decade kind of crafting a law that was meant to troubleshoot exactly the scenario you're describing. How do we deal with this kind of electoral mess if it ever kind of happens again? And they wrote a law called the Electoral Act of 1887, the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And this is a law which would continue. This is still in the books. This would guide any kind of electoral crisis that emerges uh, come November. And that law is incredibly deficient. I would say it is a all but incoherent law that provides no guidance whatsoever. Now you might say, okay, well, if the uh, if there's no legislative fix, what about the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court weren't they the ones who kind of saved us for better or worse in a highly partisan uh, decision in the year 2000? Did they step in and solve that electoral mess? And I would say no. I would say it really wasn't the Supreme Court. I again would say it was Al Gore who saved us from an electoral meltdown then, because he uh, basically accepted this highly partisan decision by the Supreme Court. And again, he put the interests of the nation ahead of his own political ambition, something I don't think we can imagine Trump doing. 
And then Colin, you alluded to this, um, to the Presidential Succession Act of 1947. And what that basically says is, if it comes to noon on January 20th, and we don't have anyone who can claim to be the rightfully elected president, uh, then it is the case that, um, that according to that law, um, the Speaker of the House um, would become president, provided that he or she resigns her post. So assuming that Nancy Pelosi resigns her post, she would be president. Now, would that solve the crisis? Now, again, I don't think that solves the crisis at all because that, again, assumes that we don't have an incumbent in the White House who's continuing to claim that he is the rightful um, chief executive and commander in chief. And so I don't think it's the kind of thing that, oh, well, at that point, uh, Trump politely bows out and permits Nancy Pelosi to be acting president. Again, I think you would have a situation in which two people are claiming to be the rightful commander in chief. And that really is a world of hurt that we don't really want to imagine. Um, I tried to ask a very, very senior member of the military when I was writing this book. Uh, I asked a very, very senior uh, member of the military how... Um, they would respond to such a situation. And he was very, very reluctant even to, um, to think about it. Um, he really was like, you know, this is the kind of world of hurt that we really don't want to be thinking about. Right. Although I think we're going to have to think about it. So what we'll do here is we'll take a little bit of a break here. Uh, Lawrence Douglas is with us and his book is Will He Go? Question mark Trump and the looming electoral meltdown in 2020. We also uh, towards the second half of the show. Would love to hear from you. Call us at 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR. You can join the Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook. You can tweet us at WNPR. Colin, we will be back after this. A long time coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh, yes, it And we are back. A special thanks to Katie Jalarski, uh, the big boss and the original gangster who came in here, uh, came in out here. I'm not there. She came to the studio uh, because we uh, needed someone to run the board uh, today. We're doing kind of an emergency show based on what happened yesterday. Betsy Kaplan is producing. Uh, and before we get back to the guest and to your phone calls, I, I did want to say that one th thought that I have had, and it's going to lead into what I want to ask Lawrence Douglas about next, is... You know, if you think back to 2017, Trump was over in France and he saw Bastille Day and he came back and he had this whole thing where he wanted to have a big military parade. Remember that? He wanted to have like a big military parade with tanks and stuff. And he never totally let go of that idea. And he eventually kind of got some version of it uh, a few years later. Um, you, you see something like yesterday, this really militarized presence, uh, shooting rubber bullets, uh, tear gas, flashbangs. Uh, and shoving with shields against peacefully assembled protesters for no other purpose than President Trump wanting to walk a, a short distance for a photo op, not because there was any particular security issue at stake or any threat posed by these people. Uh, and you think about his phone call to the governors where he talked uh, about basically sending uh, large military presences in, whether they like it or not. Um, I I think all of that, even the parade stuff, I don't know whether he's smart enough to do it consciously, but maybe at a feral subconscious level, he wants us to get used to seeing tanks in the street. 
Um, you know, I mean, he really wants to get us us to get used to seeing the military operating domestically, which for the most part violates the Posse Comitatus Act. So as we go back to Lawrence Douglas, um, that's my next question to you. I mean, we sort of know that there are scenarios for orderly transfers of powers, and, and we even just checked in on uh, an, or, uh, an orderly transfer of power in a somewhat confusing scenario, a stalemated Congress unable to agree on a certification of the election results. Theoretically, it defaults to the Speaker of the House if she resigns her post and be- takes over as president. But there are other possibilities, too, including the possibility of the president simply saying, I'm not leaving. Uh, I'm not accepting uh, any 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 result that works against me, and I'm certainly not accepting any idea that Nancy Pelosi is about to become the president in my stead. And then uh, Lawrence Douglas, and we we should say Lawrence Douglas, uh, James J. Grossfeld, uh, chair in law jurisprudence and social thought at Amherst College, and the author of "Will He Go: Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020." I mean, at that point, a completely recalcitrant president. Uh, how do you get them out? Who gets them out? Yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation, even though, you know, I should emphasize that I don't necessarily imagine um, uh, something like, you know, seven days in May kind of uh, playing itself out in January, January 2020. Like, don't I don't necessarily imagine, you know, Trump barricaded in the Oval Office, surrounded by a phalanx of rogue uh, Secret Service agents all protecting him and, you know, tanks mobilized to keep him in power. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with what other Republicans would be doing. That is, um, you know, if it is the case that let's say here are a couple situations which I think could defang the um, the kind of uh, nightmare scenario that we're entertaining. Called uh, one would be um, if it were the case that Trump lost pretty decisively. Now, I'm not sure if that really is a likely scenario. In all likelihood, it is going to be a very, very closely contested election. Uh, but if he were to lose decisively, then I think his uh, his opportunities to create constitutional mis- uh, mischief are going to be quite limited. Uh, because I'm not sure if, um, if the Republicans, if Republican lawmakers would go along with him. The other thing that I think would constrain his power to create constitutional mischief is if he loses, if the Republicans lose the Senate in the 2020 elections, that is, if the Senate and the House, if the House remains in the hands of uh, Democrats and the Democrats are able to flip the Senate, then I think, again, it's going to be very difficult for him to create this kind of mayhem because he's not going to have these lawmakers who basically are, are giving him a uh, cover in the electoral count process in Congress, because I really see that the, the, the opportunities for crisis kind of spiraling out of control is when he's provided this cover from, con- from congressional lawmakers, such as we saw in the whole impeachment proceeding, when we saw, you know, the Senate unwilling to hold him to account for acts, which I think really any sort of uh, neutral, fair-minded person would think this looks like impeachable conduct. And, you know, again, not to remind your readers what, I mean, your listeners, what they already know, but um, I thought it was extraordinary that the only vote against them came from Mitt Romney. And, you know, Mitt Romney, eight years ago, he was the standard bearer of the Republican Party. And now he's such an outlier to the party that he's the only one who's prepared to hold the president to account. 
And in the absence of a party that is prepared to hold him to account, that's where the real danger and mischief arises. So that actually leads us pretty well to our first uh, call. Uh, and uh, by the way, our number today is 888-720-9677. That's actually our number every day, but 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-WNPR. This is John from Woodstock calling in. Hi, John. Hi, Colin. Um I, I appreciate you doing the show today, and I appreciate Mr. Douglas's uh, thoughts and the um, thought exercises there. But I got to say, uh, I'm at the point where this is very personal, and for the first time in my life, I've thought about getting a gun to protect myself from Republicans, from Trump supporters. And I I got to ask, you got to get some Republicans on there. I need to understand what these people are about, that they would stay part of an organization that really, you know, Tom Cotton today on Twitter, and he took it down, is suggesting, you know, they bring troops in and use them on American citizens. That's what that organization is about. And on top of that, you know, we've got Democrats. I don't see them. They should be on the front lines of this, and they're not. They're very careful. You know, this is this is really personal, and I am really concerned about this. My my daughter and a bunch of her friends who work at a farm stand out in you know the wilds of Woodstock are ready to quit. They had a meeting last night because of you know the the owner of the farm is a Trump supporter, and they're scared about it. This is where we're at in America. I, I appreciate thinking about all the constitutional give and take and what could happen in this scenario and that. Uh-uh, we're way past that, and I need to know what to do. And I'm thinking about extreme measures that I've never thought about in my life. All right. Well, thanks for your call, John. I don't really think uh, getting a gun is going to help that much one way, one way or the other uh, out there in Woodstock. That's probably uh, Woodstock, Connecticut, probably not where the battle is going to be taken anyway. But I just wanted to say something, and then I also want to let Lawrence Douglas talk about this. I do agree about one part of his call, which is that the failure of any Republicans to get on the record about this. I mean, yesterday I thought was a Rubicon crossed. I thought uh, it was more than just the ordinary level of chaos, disorder, and violation of precedent that we're sort of getting used to and by degrees. Uh, I thought yesterday was kind of a paradigm shift, more of a sharp turn uh, than a gentle curve in that road. And there was, as far as I can tell, zero outcry from Republicans about this. And yes, Tom Cotton doubled down on it. Matt Goetz was talking about extrajudicial uh, executions of American protesters from Antifa. Um, and, And I do regard this as a litmus test. And the fact that Republicans won't speak out now uh, with this kind of militarization, with this kind of use of force against peaceful uh, protesters in Washington, uh, with the kind of talk of a a quasi-military invasion of states, uh, I, I, I am going to hold it against the people who don't speak up now. Don't come to me in three years and say you want to lead, you want to be governor of Connecticut. If you're not going to lead now, uh, you don't have leadership skills. Uh, but uh, let's uh, go back to uh, this whole scenario 
uh, Lawrence Douglas. Because, you know, one of the questions is, is there some kind of embedded consensus about what can and can't happen? And, and you know, a few years ago, I might have said, yes, that, you know, at a certain point, Mitch McConnell and his uh, and his followers would say, well, no, that's that's going too far. Um, that is that's a bridge we're not willing to cross alongside the president. I'm nowhere near as confident about that as I used to be. And if you even look at the way that McConnell handled uh, the Supreme Court appointment uh, during the, the later stages of Barack Obama's term, it, it seems pretty clear that he's willing to act opportunistically. So, I don't, Lawrence, what are your thoughts about the political dimension, the ultimate political dimension of the question? Yeah, I think it's a very good observation. And I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of Americans, you know, tens of millions of Americans over the last few, few years, I think we've been pretty uh, astonished at the degree to which, um, you know, Trump has been able to smash through the guardrails of, you know, the norms that are meant to kind of guide um, constitutional civility and, you know, democratic civil discourse, just smash through them and to do it with impunity. And you keep thinking like, oh, my God, now he's gone too far. Now there's going to be some kind of cost that he's going to have to pay. And he never has to pay that cost. And uh, he didn't have to pay the cost during the impeachment proceeding. He hasn't had to pay the cost all along. And uh, and I think one of the things you point out is also a very important point. If I get all the, all the way back to uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, refusal to schedule so much as a hearing for Merrick Garland. Remember, Merrick Garland was the uh, very prominent, moderate um, uh, federal court judge who was nominated by Barack Obama to replace uh, Scalia after Scalia died. And um, Mitch McConnell basically acted as if, well, we're just not going to give him a hearing. I mean, it was almost this act of kind of electoral defiance of refusing to recognize that the elected president of the United States was Barack Obama. And that kind of that that pattern of the Republicans uh, acting as if, well, the only elections we really need to respect, the only outcomes we need to respect are those that we win. It's it's somewhat emerged as a very disturbing pattern. It's disturbing pattern also on the state level in Wisconsin. Uh, in the midterm elections, you find uh, a Democrat winning the uh, state um, gubernatorial election in Wisconsin. So what, of the, what does the uh, state uh, Republican lawmakers do? They immediately uh, pass laws to basically strip the governor of powers that the governor has long uh, enjoyed. And it's, again, these, these acts of electoral nullification, which are very, very disturbing, which also kind of raise, again, in my mind, the very disturbing prospect that if Trump is capable, if the result, if the result in 2020 is close enough that you can um, make some kind of turn into some kind of contested result, that uh, Republicans and the right-wing media, they're just going to stand by him. And, uh, you know, that could really imperil the future of our constitutional democracy. Right. There's a way in which, you know, when we were really looking at the impeachment process uh, at the beginning of 2020, one thing that we kept coming back to was the notion of this kind of epistemic crisis that's fueled to a certain degree by having Fox News and then things that uh, skew even to the right of Fox News, uh, which create 
kind of a different reality, something that didn't uh, exist uh, in, during the Nixon impeachment. Uh, I mean, not that there weren't some conservative news sources, but there wasn't this kind of pervasive uh, major league news source that could couch things uh, in very different terms. We've got some calls coming in here. I'd like to get to a few of them. I think we've had a little bit of a phone popping problem here, but I think this might be Matt. Is this Matt? Hi, are you there? Hi. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Yeah. What's on your mind? Um, so I was I was at the protest uh, on Sunday in Waterbury mm-hmm. from nine o'clock in the morning all the way up until about five thirty, and um, one one of the key things I noticed we marched at, all around through the room we marched all throughout the city we even ended up taking uh, uh, eighty four for a little while and holding it down at the very beginning though the police saw the police chief said he was on our side on our side but kept on making sarcastic remarks and. Just the same thing with all the other officers we talked to. They would say they're on our side, but they would grin afterwards. They would have these, these and kind of, kind of like fake faces on almost. Now, towards the end of the protest, um, as we were winding down, uh, about 30 people ended up getting arrested after they said they were on our side. We did not. We were not violent. We did not throw rocks at them. And, and it seems that the police right now are kind of following what Trump is saying. Well, I think I don't know. Yeah, I think in Connecticut has been at least mercifully a more peaceable kingdom than a lot of other places. And there certainly have been places where in Hartford and New Britain and police chiefs have actually knelt down alongside uh, the protesters in a very visible and untake backable uh, expression of solidarity. I hadn't quite heard the granular details of Waterbury that you're describing. And it's also just sort of possible that almost kind of as a matter of honor, they feel like they should at least arrest somebody. I also get worried when you guys well, take down the in- interstates just because I'm worried for your safety. I still don't understand how that can be accomplished well, without bloodshed. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Finish your thought. The, so the, 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 so the two things quickly, um, so the point of the, the inter- taking over the interstate is just to interrupt commerce, which is this is a fight against a, a racist and systematic system. Commerce is one of the bases of those systems. Um, the second point being, as we were marching through the city, the police were using horses, um, loud, uh, sirens, and flashbangs to antagonize the crowd while we were still within our permitted time slot. And it's just something that's not being properly covered. And they were antagonizing. They they were antagonizing us. Uh, Anyway, that's all I have to say. Okay. Well, first of all, sorry you had that experience, but it's also part of protest. and uh, compared to the rest of the nation, maybe maybe I'm guilty of sort of saying, well, compared to the really horrible stuff, this doesn't seem so bad, which is, of course, how America has functioned for the last three and a half years. Uh, compared to last week, this thing doesn't seem quite so horrible. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of Lawrence Douglas. we got a few more phone calls uh, in here. Uh, we're uh, running out of time, but we'll get to as many of you as we can. No chance. To So we're back. Uh, Once again, I have to say some thank yous uh, to Katie Tularski, who is uh, the big boss uh, and doesn't have to do stuff like this, volunteered to come in today because we kind of didn't have another plan uh, for having anybody run the studio. We're operating remotely. Uh, Betsy Kaplan on her end. She's the producer of this episode and me on my end. Um, We uh, are going to do a kind of related show, I think, tomorrow. Uh, We know that we're having to kind of re- 
recast these shows. But Alexandra Petri, who's a very, very funny writer for The Washington Post, is scheduled to be on. And I think she's going to stay on because she also has some very serious things to say. And she's right there at the epicenter of all this. Uh, right now we're talking we're going to get to as many phone calls as you can. I, first of all, just kind of want to wrap things up with Lawrence Douglas. Uh, his latest book is Will He Go? Question mark. Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. He's a chair at Amherst College. So I just wanted to ask you maybe one last thing about all this, because, yeah, we're talking about a lot of uncertain scenarios where perhaps President Trump resists the idea that he has lost, or if it's a narrow vote, or that it's impossible to get consensus from Congress to certify the election one way or another. And and so, but uh, imagine a, a situation where it's fairly clear that Trump has lost, uh, and yet he resists that result. He tries to enlist uh, either Republican or military aid to back him up there. Uh, as Bill Curry tweeted, uh, put on Facebook today, uh, the greatest um, threat to our democracy since the Civil War, we must not only win an election, but, but prepare to defend the victory. And I don't know. I don't expect you to have a magical answer for this, Lawrence Douglas, but that's an interesting question. I mean, imagine what looks anyway to rational eyes like a victory that is somehow or other not accepted by the president, that is resisted in the, somehow by the president, maybe not by going to a bunker or something like that, but, you know, but a substantial resistance and an attempt to enlist public opinion, uh, some public opinion on his side. How do you defend an actual victory? It, again, the defense has to come not simply from uh, those who voted to get him out of office. I think the, uh, the, the reaction, the response has to include Republican voices. I mean, one of the things that we saw back in 2016 is um, the Obama administration uh, back then was very, very concerned that if Trump lost to Hillary Clinton, that he was not going to acknowledge her, her victory as legitimate. And so what they did is they tried to um, put together kind of a um, an all-star list of Republicans, people like uh, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, uh, the former uh, Bush presidents, 41 and 43, get them together to all make statements saying, uh, excuse me, this election was properly conducted. Uh, Hillary Clinton won. Now it's time for uh, Mr. Trump to uh, concede. Um, so they were prepared for that kind of eventuality. Um, of course, that was back in 2016. We weren't dealing with an incumbent president. So whatever kind of mischief he could have committed, could have made in 2016 as a candidate, doesn't compare to the kind of mischief that an incumbent could uh, create. But I do think that it would be absolutely essential to have leading Republican voices come out and say enough. Right. Uh, it, does, it does seem as though it, it, a former President Bush is already setting the stage for that. I mean, so it, many of the things that he has done has made it, have made it clear where his sympathies are. Lawrence Douglas, the book is oh, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm just going to speed through as many calls uh, as I possibly uh, can get to uh, here. We don't have a whole lot of time, but I think this might be Alex. Is this Alex? Yes, it's Alex from Cuttersfield. Yeah. Sure. What's on your sure. mind? Uh, Colin, I was deeply concerned by what you said earlier that uh, Trump had spoken with Vladimir Putin before he called the governors and told them to get tough on, on protesters. 
because as a lot of folks remember back in 2014, Vladimir Putin was calling a guy named um, Viktor Yanukovych in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, who happened to be a client of Paul Manafort's, uh, and was telling him the same things. You've got to get tough, and you've got to uh, be tough on these protesters. And consequently, 100 people were, sh- were gunned down by uh, the government snipers before Yanukovych was chased out of the country. Um, I'm really concerned that Trump listening to Putin and the fact that he admires Putin as an authoritarian thug uh, could very well try to follow the same script here in the United States, and that the results could be really deadly. Right. Supposedly, they talked about the latest efforts to defeat the coronavirus and reopen global economies and progress towards convening the G7, but uh, we tend not to have tapes or transcripts of these calls. So who knows? Let me go to uh, Chuck. This might be Chuck anyway in Willington or Chuck from somewhere. Hi, Chuck. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm from Newington. Oh, Newington. Okay, fine. Hey, my comment was that the governor needs to be able to uh, keep the highways clear because this would be a um, uh, an excuse for Trump to bring in the federal troops because it's an interference with interstate commerce. If you block off 84 and prevent traffic from flowing, then you really screw up the economy and you screw up, you know, business. It's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about it that way. He, you might be handing him a rationale you don't want him to have. Uh, all right. Here is, uh, I think, Alexandra. Am I, do, do I have that right? Okay, you've yeah. got about a minute. Uh, fire away. Okay. I just want to, first of all, I feel like I need the guy that, that called it to stop. I feel like I need to defend my my side, which is conservative. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about his daughter being afraid of Republicans. Let me tell you real quick, Colin, what I saw on the news last night. With all of the protesters, which are not being calm, there was this black woman that got on, and she was from, like, poverty, and she stood there crying. And she said, you know, these people from my town are burning down all of the stores and buildings that I need to buy things to survive. And my heart broke for her. This is a black woman saying this. Mm-hmm. It was so sad. I just, I, you know, people don't get it. These people on the streets, I'm sorry, they don't get it. All right, we're going to have to, I don't mean to cut you off, but we are literally out of time, uh, and it's a little bit off topic. Uh, but we understand that there's pain all around right now. Uh, there's uh, people suffering and, and experiencing fear in all kinds of different contexts. Thanks to everybody who listened today. Thanks to uh, Katie Tularski and Betsy Kaplan to for rising to the challenge without much notice. Uh, thanks to Lawrence Douglas, too. We'll be back tomorrow. When the revolution comes... Merchants will give away matzo balls and gefilte fish to anyone they see with an afro. Frank Schiffen will give away the Apollo to the first person he sees wearing a blue dashiki when the revolution comes. When the revolution comes, afros are gonna be trying to straighten their heads, and straighten heads are gonna be trying to wear afros when the revolution.